welcome to Plato's Gravity, a homebrew podcast. This is Aaron. I'm Jason. Today we are very excited to welcome Dr. J. Nicole Jackson Beckham to the show. Jay is a professor of communication at Randolph College and a beer scholar. She's been a homebrewer for more than a decade, and her passion and dedication led to her new role as the diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association. We're incredibly excited. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jay. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So we like to start every show with a beer chosen by our guests. So today we are drinking a Rye on Rye from 2018 from Boulevard Brewing Company. Can you talk about why you chose this beer for the show? Uh, yeah, you know, so I'm having a Rye moment right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a brewing ingredient that I have loved for a long time, but seemed to neglect a lot. This one in particular, obviously the you know the barrel aged quality um, going Rye on Rye. Yeah, was really interesting. Um, I think you see a lot of rye PAs, and that seems to be a lot of kind of standard rye brewing. So I love anybody who picks up something a little bit different and pushes the ingredient. Right. I feel like what's really nice about this beer is that it's uh, it's really rye forward. So the malt really is taking taking the day with this beer. So actually, yeah. this is an interesting question. Wait, no, hold on. Barley is wheat, right? No. But rye is in fact wheat. Rye is actually a different grass, I believe. Is it? Uh, yeah, I believe it is. Okay. And I, uh, I will have to back it up. But I believe rye is a totally separate grass. Yeah, okay, you, so uh, that ruins my my next question. If, but it comes a lot like wheat, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Was is is a rye beer technically like in a weird sort of backwards way? Because I know it's super, it, like it's a super low gluten, like compared to the normal wheat that you would use for flour or almost any other application that you'd use wheat for. It's a fairly low-gluten wheat, but it's not gluten-free. No, it's not. It's gluten-free. It's a wheat-like cereal plant that tolerates poor soils and low temperatures. Yeah, which is why, like, uh, I know, because I make a lot of bread, right? And if you if you throw rye into, like, rye flour in, you're usually going to add some extra wheat gluten because okay. it just doesn't, you don't get those protein meshes quite right. the same as you would so you gotta add right. a little extra in there that's interesting i didn't realize it's actually a separate cereal so you brewed a little bit with rye what what when you put rye into a beer what is the what percentage of the grain bill would you said would okay. you typically use yeah so i've gone generally between 10 and 30 mm-hmm. percent of the grist rye doesn't have a you know a husk so uh it can you can get a lot of stuff mashes with it i absolutely love that rye gives you this really spicy um, multiness mm-hmm. that, um, but it isn't, it doesn't have the heaviest mouthfeel, right? Like, so you get like all this like concentrated character, but it can, it can still be a little bit dry. Yeah. I feel like it's a very complex, but not heavy flavor. Yeah. 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 So um, I have put it in kind of malt forward IPAs, which I actually love rye and like a Scottish ale yeasts. Ooh. Just do something so dope together that I like really love. Have you done like a Scottish beer? Have you done like rye with Golden Promise? Uh, but no, I haven't. But that would probably be really great. Usually, I kind of go like Mare Sauter, um Okay. Most of the time, just because I like a I like a little bit of toast on pretty much everything. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's a good idea. I feel like I need to write that down. I, it, it'll be uh, in audio format for your listening pleasure <laughs> yeah, at, some point, at some point in the future. Uh, and I've done a little bit of, um, I put it in some other random things, like some stouts I put it in. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, if you're anything like me, I kind of brew stouts as a little bit of house cleaning sometimes where I'm like, mm. 
yeah, everything in everything yeah. in the kitchen sink. Just just get that in there. <laughs> but it actually has come out pretty well. That's we have a, a, a we visit the uh, the homebrew shop on their Friday night clubs where people bring their own beer. And we have there there was a guy last time who brought his uh, clean the cabinet out uh, stout to us. Yeah, and he he approached us and he was like, yeah, I should try this. And he was hoping that we would like it because he didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I drank, I drank, you know, two, you know, three or four ounce pours of it just to be a, a good chap. I, I went for the second one, but the growler was full at the end of the night. Uh, so yeah. apparently I'll tell him next time I see him, I'll tell him that rye is the, is the secret to the clean the yeah, cabinet, add, add some complexity to it. And this, I also uh, because it was in that those rye barrels, you can de- it definitely feels like if you if you close your eyes and didn't know you were drinking beer, you could think you were drinking a little bit of a whiskey. It's yeah, it's yeah. pretty solid. That yeah, that flavor coming across is really nice in this. Yeah, and I, what's weird, I like it that it's not just like that kind of I don't know woody flavor. Like if you close your yeah, eyes, right? right, like you get um, like a little bit of that like heat on the spice. That's really. Well, there's a weird thing. I think the like the first barrel aged beer I had was Kentucky Bourbon Barrel something. Uh-huh. I'm assuming like a stout, which a buddy of mine had been about. Like he had been talking about it for months. He's like, "This is the best thing I've ever had, and I love it." And then I drank it, and it's just the most like viscous. Yeah. And like it's like drinking alcoholic maple syrup, and a it's a little chewy. Yeah, it's super rich, and I just couldn't do it this thing is is beautiful and it's still it still drinks like a uh, fluid <laughs> like that that is if i get barrel aged stuff i want it to be like this and a lot i feel like a lot of times especially when they started getting uh more popular a lot of them took after that sort of kentucky bourbon barrel where they were really thick and really dark and really chewy so this, uh, this I will probably drink again soon. Yeah, there's not a lot of it here, so we're gonna have to drive around to get it. So yeah. that'll be we had a we had a fun time driving around town to get it yesterday. Hopefully they'll they'll pick up they'll pick up some more of it. So let's go a little bit back to the to the beginning. Uh, you've been brewing for quite a while. What uh, what inspired you to begin brewing? So when I started brewing, I was living in San Diego. Okay. So this is like the mid 2000s. You know, before I went out to San Diego, late 90s to, you know, 2000s, um, one of my friends knew I really love beer and gave me um, a subscription to Michael Jackson's Beer of the Month Club. Oh, very nice. And I, it was a birthday gift. I remember being like, you are the best, you know, and it's, I still count it among the best gifts I've ever gotten, for sure. And, you know, that was really great, but it was super private. Mm-hmm. I was living alone in, in DC in a condo and working and, um, you know, I'd show up and once a month, this like case would be on my doorstep and I'd be like, yeah, you know, but I would invite my friends over and like, you know, we were like kind of like aging post-punk kids living in DC and like mm-hmm. everybody just drank like crap loads of PBR, you yeah. know, and I'd be like, come on friends, like come drink my, my sweet beer with me. And they're like, you know, like none of my friends are into it. Jason's really mad at the rest of the hipsters for making PBR expensive. It's a fine, yeah. like when it was cheap, it was worth the money. Like it did drive the price up there. Yeah, it's true. Now I'm rocking. And now I'm, I'm big on hams. Hams is my go-to cube. No, we're, I, I don't think that's distributed out this way. Oh, oh, that's, it's terrible. But if you're ever okay. out East, like, 
it yeah, don't drink it get something good <laughs> spend your money wisely because you're an adult and you've right. lived too many things oh that's amazing but yeah you know so no not not a lot of people were interested in, in drinking with me um so it just became this like very private habit of like you know and i think it's one of those things where I never had thought about the fact before that point, I'd never thought about the fact that there were beers that were not distributed everywhere. Right. And I mean, this is obviously an obvious point, but I mm-hmm. think until I started getting like random little things in the mail from like way across the country, I was like, wait, lots of beer isn't distributed very far. And like, for some reason that like green lighted, you know, and I was like, Oh, I have to go places and drink more things. Yeah. You know? So when I ended up in San Diego and, you know, in the early 2000s, San Diego was just crap. It was just crazy. Right. Like, and that's a um, huge move, right? Like that's all the, that's like as far yeah, away. You know, as you well, can go. So like we had, so, you know, nine 11, yeah. you know, and then we had snipers and then there was anthrax in my post office. Wow. Um, it was not a fun place. DC was a weird place to be in the early 2000s. And wow. I really just kind of made, I was in this like relationship and the person I was with wanted to go out West and, you know, I recently finished undergrad and wasn't tied down with a lot of stuff. And I was like, screw it, let's go, you know. Mm-hmm. And for a person that had this kind of like weird, private, hoardy beer habit, San Diego was like, oh, you could, this is a, actually a community thing. Like you can be this weirdo with like all these other people, you know. I um, and I think I just had like energy about about beer at the point, And I was voraciously reading style books and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden I had like people to share this with mm-hmm. and i just like kind of turned sponge. Like I just wanted, I wanted as much as I could get. So I was like beer dinner. Yes. Cheese pairings. Yes. Homebrewing. Okay. Like I just, I just wanted to try everything. You know? And so that was, that was kind of it. Right. Like I was in this place where I was just, if it had to do with beer, I was like jumping. And of course, like if you're a certain type of homebrewer, like that jump never really stops. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Two feet are still in yeah, a pretty sweet system that you brew with now. Can you talk about how your brewing systems have grown over the years? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that made me or makes me a, like a happy home brewer is that I'm also like such a gadgety DIY person as well. Like I love homemade stuff. My dad's an electrical engineer. And, Bonus. Okay. You know, he loves stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, at the beginning... I think I went through what a lot of people did. Like I, like I, excuse me, I screwed up my electric stove. You can in fact fuck up your, your electric stove. Pretty quickly went to, you know, a, like a standard kind of modular igloo cooler, tur- turkey fryer, hmm. backyard awesomeness and stayed there for a long time. When I had some extra money, I kind of had to make this decision about how to expand. And I so was like, excited about getting like you know a better brewing rig and you know maybe some conicals you know i was like yeah yeah uh and then one of somebody i ran into was one of the best pieces of advice i've ever gotten they're like put all your money when you get it into temperature control and -hmm. you can do everything else later so the first few things i did was actually um, start being like that weirdo was like do you need that fridge (laughs) (laughs) you're not using that fridge anymore no freezer so I have so the um, like a a fermenter box with an uh, external temperature control that's at, like made out of a you know a aquarium thermometer. Oh, nice! 
So you didn't even like go for an ink bird. You're like, now nah, I'm going to make no. this too. <laughs> no, I'm making that too. Nice. So, and that works really well, actually. And definitely like that was such the kind of move that bumped me up to being like, oh, wow. You know, because um, the quality got so much better after committing to temperature. Control. Yeah, we, we recently got a lagering fridge and it is like right now we have our second beer down there. We're pretty excited yeah. about it. Yeah, of course I mean, you have temperature control. You have temperature control now in your match as well, which is the thing we have not gotten to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it used to be just like standing over it, you know, right. um, which you know works sometimes too. Sometimes is the right word. And yeah. I have like a semi-automated system right now, um, but I still stand over it. Like I can't, yeah, not do it. <laughs> like right. it's part of it's part of what I do. So yeah, I right now I'm brewing on a like a very compact electric brewing system that I built. I had a really small space that I was brewing in. So I just like couldn't have like, you know, kettles for days. And so it's a really vertical setup based on um, K rim, uh, kettle rims, right? Uh, so essentially you're mashing in one container that's on top of a kettle. Um, your kettle is actually where the heating element is. So that's a, um, a low, a high density um, wattage water heating. Element. And it's essentially that's, what serves as your kind of heating as it's circulating, but it also is your boil kettle. You have that on 220 or 110? So I'm, it goes both ways. Okay. Uh, so I made it so it would do both. Um, Sweet. Because I just knew, because uh, it's portable enough, I could take it places. Mm-hmm. So I can, I've run it on, on 110 more than I run on 220, actually. Okay, wow. Just because of like circumstances. Um, but like, it is so much faster. Like it's it's way faster, uh, and the boil is a little nicer. You know? Nice vigorous rolling boil that makes yeah. you happy to look at. Yeah, but it's not. It's actually not terrible. So you, uh, one of the things that one of the cool stories from your brewing history is that you brewed all the beer for your wedding. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you have this set up at that time, or did you? Were you? You should go at a little less high tech. It was. It was right after I finished building this. Oh, so right this after. is like the inaugural run. Yeah, yeah. So I think I ran two beers on it before I started brewing the wedding stuff. Sweet. So how did that go? How much how much beer did you have to brew for your wedding? Yeah, so we I took I took about forty gallons of beer for the wedding. Wow. Well, not forty gallons of beer. So I took I took four things. We have a bunch of like hippie weirdos who have like, you know, dietary issues. So, <laughs> that's fair. So, We're all getting older. That's that's true. just us. They hate gluten. Yeah. So I actually did a cider, which I don't do often, but I have enough gluten-free people. So I did a hibiscus cider okay. for the gluten-freeze. And then I did a, uh, a a stout that was on dark oak Ooh. for the first night. And I'll, I'll back up a little bit and say that our wedding was, um, we basically just rented out a big section of a park for the entire weekend. Sweet. Oh. So there was like 25 cabins and like a mess hall. Uh, and we just stayed for the whole weekend. We were like, you don't have to get a hotel. You can bring your dog. Just like come on Friday and, you know, crawl out on. My on wife is very jealous. She told me over and over we could have gotten married in a field. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, we did get married in a field. So for the first night, Friday night, the wedding was on Saturdays, but Friday night people came in. We had a, uh, a s'mores social around this big bonfire. So I brewed the stout for the first night. Um, so we had this like oaked stout with the s'mores. And when you when you say oaked, are you like you uh, did you actually put it in a barrel or you're adding like chips? 
chipped it. Okay. Yeah. So okay. did the um, dark French chips. Okay. And then I did a really kind of citrusy IPA out of Belgian yeast. And then I did a, um, we called it the Miller Lite replacement beer, nice. which is just like a very, you know, clean golden ale for like everybody's like pissy uncle that's like that i i drink coors light you know drinking um, hippie crap right um and funny enough that like that's that was clearly the hardest beer to brew like yeah absolutely because you don't get to hide behind anything right yeah and uh i probably spent the most time so yeah uh i mean it, it was cool like one of the big things for me like I, I i don't brew for a lot of volume you know i'm i'm pretty much the beer drinker in the family and so I can roll through five at a time pretty leisurely. And this was the first time I had to really kind of like push my capacity as yeah. far as like, what, what can I keep at temperature? How many kegs do I have? Right. right. Like, um, what, what's happening here? Right. And so I think for a lot of homebrewers who might be aspiring to do something like this, like serving style, like how did you, how did you get it to the place? What did that look like? Yeah. So, uh, this was actually my favorite thing. And I, I might have to send you a picture if I can find one. So I built a jockey box. Okay. Sweet. Of course you built it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I went on Amazon or not Amazon, eBay. And I found a, basically a chill plate for soda. Okay. Where, like you, you put them in the bottom of an ice container and they, you know, if you're chilling, like, well, you know, soda, it's like cornies. Sure. Uh, so it's a six in, six out. Um, I only use four. But it's great. You, you know, this, it's heavy as hell. It's crazy. It's not that big. It's probably about, I don't know, 12 by 16 by 3. But okay. it weighs a ton. I uh, stick it in the bottom of a really nice cooler and ice it. And it chills, like, perfectly cold. So just, you know, drilled lines in in the back of the cooler, installed four faucet shanks in the front. And that, you know, I've used that for a couple of homebrew festivals. For the wedding, we built this, it was just almost like a big lumber wall. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of pulled the shanks out of the cooler and, and, and installed them in the wall. The people just walked up to this kind of, you know, wall and poured their in. That's fantastic. So, yeah, that's really great. Um, and you got to get a cooler with wheels so you can rolled a heavy ass jockey box. Around. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I mean, it was, it was, it was a really great, I mean, it was one of those moments where you're like, you know, I was freaking out. I was like, do I have enough disconnects? And then I was like, Oh, I do. Right. Right. So it was one of those moments where I'm like, you know, you feel like you're a hoarder all the time when you're a home brewer of a particular ilk. Yeah. Uh, and I like to some degree have like low level guilt about it all the time. But on that day it was like, yeah. Like I was proud of every damn thing I've ever saved. Well, and that's kind of, it's kind of cool that you were able to scale up that much. Like what was that process like? How much planning on top of already planning your wedding? Because that's already, I'm not married. I don't know what it's like. It sounds yeah. like a nightmare. Like Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful nightmare. Well, I mean, Jason. the end yeah. result is, a, is amazing. Control chaos, right? Yeah. It's it, that thing. It's your uh, day, but it's everyone else's day. Yeah, I will say the the wedding planning process would have been like way more horrible had not had like the beer not been one of my major projects and responsibilities. Okay. Like what you know, when everything's kind of falling apart and right, people are stressing about the little things, like who's going to sit next to who, and you're like, nobody cares about that. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody sit down and eat. You know, like you, you start getting like. There's food, really just do it. The beer's going to be really good. No one's going to care. No one's going to care, right? Uh, I could kind of run off and like tinker with beer, check on kegs, and um, it, it became kind of a sanctuary. Uh, and it was cool. Like, you know, I 
I, you get to share a beer with people that come over, you know, and, you know, I have kitchen integrator, but I don't think I've shared that much beer or that many beers at one time with that many people I really care about. Yeah. So it was just awesome. It was a great experience. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of people who homebrew it, myself included, like I, I brew to share. I, I try to drink less beer now than I ever have because beer yeah. drinking and health and all that fun stuff. But I really like to share the beer with other people. So can you talk about how, you know, on this day that's like this ultimate day for you and then sharing, can you just spend a little time with that? Yeah, I mean, um, it's so hard to put in place because like, you know, anybody out there who's like gotten married, you know, like you show up and then like all the things happen and then you're like, what the hell? Just, you know, like you don't, you didn't eat and you're like exhausted. And it's a blur. Yeah, it's, it's a complete blur. It's some of the moments where I actually got to slow down and just like enjoy my wedding was when people were like, you know, can I get behind this wall and sit back there? And I'm like, yeah, come on, you know, um, and showing them like, okay, here's the CO2 tank. Here's the, you know, just showing them how it works. And, like, you know, talking with older family who just have never even considered giving craft beer a thought. Who were like, this thing is good, you know, and yeah. maybe that might be the only craft beer they ever drink. But in that moment, they wanted to talk to me about it. I think one of the things that's fascinating to me about your story is you talked about starting your beer experience really sort of as a loner in a group of people who just wanted some PBR. And now you're in a situation where you are not only the mentor for the the Zymology Club at your university, uh, but you're in a huge role for the Brewers Association. So that's, for me, that's kind of, like beer is about community. So can you talk about that journey? Absolutely. It's, everybody kind of always says like, okay, so as, you know, a woman of color, as a person you are, um, has this community been difficult to be a part of for you? Um, and my answer is always without hesitation, no. That's awesome. Does that mean that I don't notice when I'm like the only one that looks like me around? Of course yeah. not, right? That's right. That's human nature. But there's always been something in particular about not just craft beer as a whole, but about homebrewing specifically where, you know, I'll meet somebody or I'll be in the homebrew shop or we'll be tasting around and there might be like 15 to 30 seconds of kind of like, awkward assumption making <laughs> and then like very quickly you're just like yeah that's dumb and you get rid of it right like because you're like i want to talk about beer and you want to talk about beer and i want to hear what you got going and i you know so it's like one of those it's it's always been a space for me and a, a community for me that operates in the way that i think social relations should operate more broadly right like because in my mind like we should all just kind of like work through all that stuff really fast and then get down to thinking or experiences or talking or sharing. Yeah. Right. I, I feel like the quickest way to love someone you don't know is to get to know them. And I think having a shared language about something yeah. and a shared like practice really facilitates those types of conversations and it breaks down, it breaks down walls in, in an amazing way. I'm actually yeah. almost a million percent positive. The quickest way to love someone you don't know is to stare in their eyes until they love you. <laughs> I think that I think that works too. I listened to a podcast about this this quite recently. Like silently mouthing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, occasionally lick your lips. Because... 
being the staff mentor for the Zymology Club, can you talk about how that came to be? That sounds like a dream. Um, yeah, it's, it's super rad. So before, so I've been at uh, the college I work at for about three years. Okay. And uh, before I was there, there was an uh, intrepid young guy, uh, a young scientist who um, wanted, he's homebrewing, and he wanted to start a homebrewing club on campus. And okay. um, we have the benefit of being a, a private institution. So, uh, you know, we can kind of establish our own rules about um, alcohol consumption. And, you know, he founded the club specifically with as a means of kind of like exploring certain, you know, aspects of uh, natural sciences, right? Like fermentation. Mm, sure. Things like that. Uh, one of my colleagues, um, he's a bio professor here. Uh, he was um, signed on in the faculty advisor, but he didn't really know a ton about brewing. He just was like, all right, guys, you know, you do your thing and I'll be here <laughs> to make sure you don't like set campus on fire. And he has to keep all the like equipment and fermentation in his office. So when I got here, he was like, so you seem to really do this beer thing. He was maybe a little bit ready for a break with the club. And so uh, I was like, you, you have what? You know, like I was just <laughs> shocked and amazed. Yeah. They had a club, so um, pretty quickly I, I stepped in um, in an advisory role for the club. So it's cool. Like we're we're kind of shifting and figuring out what we want to be as far as a club. I think we're doing a lot more um, like food ferments and stuff for for the students who aren't twenty one and sure. can't enjoy, and that's pretty cool. We do brew days, not on my stuff. Well, we've we've done it in my backyard too, so we'll run their rig and my rig mm-hmm. side by side. But we do brew days sometimes out in the botanical garden on campus, and that's pretty great. We've done some brewery tours. <laughs> There's a family-owned brewery in our area called Apocalypse Aleworks, and they had us out. And, like, it was super cool. I mean, really super great. Like, they took the kids on the brewing floor, uh, talked about everything. Um, they were definitely kind of a community-built brewery. They crowdfunded a ton of their stuff. And Doug uh, and his wife, Lee, you know, Doug was a – a yeast scientist or a biologist for lots and lots of years in industry before he started running a brewery. So he was just really excited to kind of talk to students about what he built and what he did. And I mean, the best part for me is that I have this like really great group of smart microbiologists who are looking at breweries as like a legit career choice, right? Like, right. And that's really cool because those are the types of people I think who are going to really like push quality concerns and help innovate. It's cool to turn them on to like, um, it's cool to take a college student and be like, beer can't, it can be more than just volume, right? Like this could be a really productive career choice or yeah. entrepreneurship opportunity or something. Well, and we're, we're living in sort of an interesting time where like, so over, I always try to make some sort of music reference because that's how I live my life. We're living yeah. in a time where like, even people like gigging musicians can make a fine living. Like they can get by and, and do okay for themselves, not being massive stars, just playing yeah, yeah. concerts and touring. And that career option didn't really exist. Uh, like pre-internet, that wasn't really a thing. You couldn't find your audience. And I think post both the homebrew revolution and the mm-hmm. microbrew revolution, like brewing now is a viable career option for people who study it, who actually know the ins and outs of it. And I think that that's, I don't know, it's it's really good to see, because I don't know that a lot of academia approaches that. Mm-hmm. I don't even know that like a, a vocational, from a vocational perspective, I don't know that many schools that cater to 
just teaching a job, I don't think, focus on it either. And there are just breweries out the wazoo. There's a new one, like, every, we're going to say, tenth of a second. (laughs) That is, don't look it up. somebody actually did that math. It's it's pretty wild, right? I think it's every couple days. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, like, I mean, you get to certain cities, and, like, if you're in, like, Asheville, or you're probably in, if you're in, like, Portland, you can, there are just breweries everywhere. So, like, if you have the education. Yeah. I'm waiting for like all of those, all of those West Coast industries to mm-hmm. like find their kind of Midwest, East Coast equivalents, like the next big yeast labs. Sure, yeah. Right, like, and there, I mean, obviously there are more and more, right? But like, mm-hmm. white labs and white yeasts have kind of held it down. For yeah. Right. Um, and I live in Virginia, right? So like, you'd be like, "Hope my slap pack makes it." You know? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. In the summer. Um, Where's Imperial from? Imperial is kind of the new player. Yeah, yeah. And I have it. They have the little cans, right? Yeah. They switched. They switched to the to the oh. smack packs. They they switched their oh, form factor they? recently. Yeah. They, I thought those cans were kind of boss. I never used one. But. Uh, they we used. I think we used them one time, and they come with like a ridiculous cell count. So you okay. just kind of throw it in the beer and I mean the like the vapor locks bubbling like almost within a couple hours and yeah. the yeast will have chewed through your beer like almost too fast. But they're still like West Coast, right? Aren't they like uh, Oregon? It looks like they're Oregon. Yeah. So they're still West Coast. Their website, I'm, I'm judging on the fact that their website says photos by PDX photo. I'm guessing that's the thing. I don't know what that means. Yeah. PD, PDX apparently means Portland. Oh, like the airport code or whatever. Oh, interesting. That's a weird thing to name your photography studio. I only know about it because HomebrewCon is in Portland and I've seen a whole bunch of hashtag PDX, etc. I mean, shout out to PDX Photo. You guys, I'm sorry for saying things about your name. It's great. (laughs) And I love you. Um, And your photos actually are quite good. Yeah. If if we're going to shout them out, we need to point out that it's PDX F-O-T-O so people can find them. They are not sponsors that we're wasting time. Right. (laughs) So, we, you know, working with students now, I think I started brewing in like the past year and a half. Jason's been a brewer for uh, a fair amount longer. A hot minute. But I think coming into brewing now is a completely different thing than coming into brewing 10, 10 or 12 oh, years yeah. ago when you started. So can you talk about how working with these college students who are probably just really new to brewing has affected your brewing as they have so much more energy to con- so much more information to consume. Well, I mean, totally stereotypically, right? Like if you read Joy of Homebrewing, it's like, you know, relax, have a homebrew, home you know. But like there was something really important and infectious about Charlie's mantra, right? Like, when you know, because when I started homebrewing, I was totally like Joy of Homebrewing one to the book. So I was like diluting bleach, like, ooh, cleaning bleach. Did yeah. you watch until I mean, the bubbles came the first time? <laughs> yeah, the first time I was like, wait, I shouldn't use bleach, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and I remember like discovering PBW and being like, what is this? You know? Magic is what it is. It works is what it is. All these things are crazy. And to some degree, I have a little push pull because I feel like I introduce my students to like where I'm brewing now yeah, and they aren't getting that like super lax intro that I got. Right. Although I brew a ton of like of extract with a little bit of 
you know, um, steep green with them yeah. because I, I think it's really, you know, a lot of people jump straight to all green right now, which I think is great. But I think at least personally for me, there was like this time where I had to really just like get comfortable and get used to the process and feel confident, you know, and extracts are getting so interesting and good right now. It's not like you're making a bunch of crap. You yeah. know, like Well, I think now it's to the point where people are really putting some money and some science behind it. And you're getting good wort because it's, pe- it's wort from experienced brewers. You just add water and it's going to be good as long as it's yeah. fresh. And that's really what's nice about it is that like if I'm on my own and I'm brewing by myself, I often get like very fussy, you know, and I get very fastidious about what I'm doing. And brewing with the kids definitely makes me just cool out a little bit and remember like, oh, you know what? I You really just like standing around with a beer in your hand a lot. Like that's <laughs> part of it that's really great, you know? And they kind of help me like cool out some and that's really great. Yeah, like J- Jason often reminds me that beer is robust and it usually makes it through the process. Yeah, <laughs> but I've also, like I, of the two of us, I'm the only one that has dumped a beer as well. But yeah. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Uh, I'll take a dumped beer, but getting to stand around with a beer in my hand. So being fastidious with your beer, a lot of times starts with <laughs> so recipe. That? Say with that one more time. Fastidious. I said it wrong. Come on. <laughs> being fastidious with your beer often starts with recipe creation. Can you talk about when you are brewing by yourself? Where does that begin for you? So where do I start with recipes? Sure. So I am like such a diehard like to the designing great beers book blue cover mm, yeah absolutely uh, that thing is like <laughs> you see it in my house it looks like like several dogs fought over it like it's so like wet and chewed up on the corners and terrible it's got wort from eight different beers in it yeah like i was just like Ugh. but i think that's it's just such a great book um as far as like kind of helping you set boundaries and like that i use software i'm a, I'm a mac user so i use the beer alchemy software beer alchemy all right yeah. fantastic um it's not it's not nearly as robust as beersmith but it kind of does what i want it to do is so. it easier to use than beersmith i find it easier to use it yes. couldn't be harder so you're <laughs> you're you're jumping the gun on the on today's <laughs> listener question so i'm gonna hop right to it so the listener question today is there are a lot of options for brewing software out there, Beersmith, Brew Target, Brewer's Friend, Beer Pro Tools, etc. Which do you use, if any, to put your recipes together and why did you choose this one? So Can we you, can we take a break real quick and f- figure out who is the listener uh, in this instance? Tracy is the listener. Okay. Yeah. Tracy, Hi, Tracy. is the listener. Thank you. So we actually don't have real listeners, it's just people <laughs> who I know who I've had listened to our only yeah. edited episode so far. I like it. You've already given away your answer. So why did you choose the software other than you have a Mac? You know, it just, it did the things that I wanted to do and not much more. And like, for me, like feature creep is such an obnoxious part of software. Like I'm like, I don't. So for instance, like people, one of the things people are like, oh, but you don't have um, like calorie counts or nutritional information if you don't use beer smith and i was like i don't drink beer because i'm trying to lose weight like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm, it's counterproductive <laughs> like i i mean that's awesome but like that's not what i wanted like really what i need is like i need a decent ingredient database i need to be able to like manage my own ingredients i want to know about targets i want to be able to like update through the process i want good srm estimation you know like i i just really wanted a good set of basics. And I think 
beer alchemy gave me that and it has a nice little phone sink so when i go to the homebrew store i can get a nice list for my recipe nice so for me i use beersmith because that's the the first thing that i encountered when i started brewing and i keep using beersmith mostly because brad smith i think taught me how to brew I've listened to every one of his podcasts and yeah, it's yeah. sort of, I, I haven't invested, investigated other softwares because I, I almost feel like I owe it to him because he puts out so much of that content. It's yeah. really, it's really strong content. So I use, I use Beersmith. I will say though, I have never once looked at how many calories my beers yeah. have. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks Brad for putting that in there. That's, that's not what I do. Jason, what do you do when you make recipes? Uh, usually when I make recipes, I, uh, write them down. Uh, I actually, uh, I guess I use Beersmith now because we brew together, but traditionally I've just kept like a brew log. Yeah. And I think that that's fine. I think that it has actually helped me because I'm traditionally really bad at writing things down. I was (laughs) like, I'm one of those people, like I was, I was really gifted from an early age with like a pretty decent memory. So I just never got in the habit of writing anything down. But I'm in my 30s now, and I don't have as good of a memory as I used to. There's just more stuff in there. So having something that's like making me, forcing me to write stuff down, it's actually been quite good for me. Yeah, you know. So um, I think a lot of times I'm, oftentimes I'm I'm looking to kind of try out or test a particular thing, Mm -hmm. like a new approach to to water or a new hop or figuring out, you know, some new malt or something, right? Like I often I'm trying to figure out a new thing. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm just doing like iterations of a particular recipe that I just want to see if I can make better. Sure. Yeah. Uh, So, and then like my homebrew store. And so, you know, I live in central Virginia in Lynchburg. Uh, It is not the beeriest town in the world. And we have like one homebrew shop that's, I like to go over there and support, but don't have the greatest range of things so mm. I'm often kind of supporting with online purchases so a lot of, of times it takes me like quite a little bit to get all everything together yeah which is different you know um several years ago like when i was working on my phd i was actually managing a homebrew shop and so that was you know i had a lot of access and yeah. that was really great now it's just kind of like you know, it takes a little while to pull things together, figuring it. And I'm still I'm still trying to figure out the water in my town. So are you using like tap water when you're brewing? So um, the cool thing is like one of the reasons why lots of the big, big breweries, like your Deschutes and Green Flash and mm-hmm. um, folks are coming out to like central mountain spine, Virginia, which is the same mountain range that runs straight through Asheville. Is we have really freaking dope water. Yeah. Even if it's municipally treated, we have pretty dope water. Other towns I've lived in around here, you can get water analysis pretty, pretty easily from the, from the municipal water management. Mm -hmm. I've had a harder time here. Although I like tweeted out about it recently, like, Hey, what's up? Can I get some water chemistry? And now they're like, Oh yeah, you can email me. So nice. So back up the phone, you managed a homebrew shop. Uh, well, so not independently. Yeah. I worked as a manager at a homebrew shop and it wasn't just a homebrew shop. It was, um, it's kind of what you call a brew and grow. Uh, so it's, um, so like some hydroponics like, and stuff in there. It's like <laughs> organic gardening, hydroponics and homebrew and winemaking. Okay. So yeah, I was, while I was working on the PhD, I worked there. 
the company had five locations throughout North Carolina and Virginia. So I was doing all the buying for the homebrew supplies. Oh, that's amazing. Um, which was awesome, right? Because at the time I was writing this um, doctoral dissertation about beer. And so it was just giving me all these connections. And, you know, we negotiated a contract with Country Malt, with Hot Union. And, you know, so we were dealing with lots of the great suppliers. And lots of times I got a lot of kind of early looks at stuff L.D. Carlson was putting out. I think that job definitely was kind of, you know, if figuring out temper control was like one big step forward mm. for me, maybe that job was another big step forward because people were asking me for help or for guidance. Yeah. And I just feel like I had to know what the hell I was talking about. So where where were your big sources of information in terms of like, wh- what do you think were the most influential either authors or sources for you to gain information when you were trying to meet those needs? I was super voracious. Like, um, so... Even though there's like so much content and a lot of people arguing, like um, forums are really helpful. Sure. Just because I feel like forums are like going through trial and error, but like you don't have to do it. Yeah. Right. You know, being in academia probably gives you the skill of of sifting through through the information and understanding what's relevant. And (laughs) yeah, I'm like weirdly patient about it. Mm, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I did read a ton of books. The BA publications are great. I read this mm. a lot. Yeah. Stan's books, San Ramos' books are really nice. Um, yeah, I think Brewing Like a Monk is next up for me. I, I'm yeah. excited for it. I probably should have read it already. Yeah, super good. Super good. But I mean, I never was a giant Belgian fan, but now I almost exclusively brew Belgians in the summer um, uh-huh. because of Belgian yeast heat tolerance. Like, it's. It's amazing. You can't do that with like any other thing. And like. You know, there are some, like, saisons that I've made, saison style beers that I've made that, that, you know, you let them run pretty hot, and they are just great. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. It's, like, a little bit more flexibility. You can do it with one volume. You know, but just that was a really important experience um, because it just made me do everything I was already doing more, I guess, right? So I kind of was already, like, sort of paying attention to water but being there inspired me to like really really sit the hell down you know john palmer Mm. uh look at his chapter on water chemistry which is really like super transparent introduction Um, sure and that helped a ton too right like as soon as i started adjusting water i was like now it's all now it's all coming together we are not there yet we we use the beer dust we cheat I'll tell you what, my my favorite, and this is like, if I had to give like a, a cheat or a favorite, it's bicarb, which is basically like baking soda, right? Sure. Yeah. Bicarbs and stouts is just remarkable. Really? It like, it gives you this fluffy mouthfeel in your stouts that is so fantastic. Huh. We will, uh, we'll write that down, put it in the show yeah. notes uh, and, get, and get that in there. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that we get to before we we get towards the end of the show is recently uh, in response to someone who was praising your work as the diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association, you said that when you approach a problem, you make thought collages, borrow and adapt from the best and rely upon every community to articulate its best self. And like I was incredibly moved by this statement. I think it's an amazing way to approach problems. Can you talk about where that approach comes from for you? Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, it, it came from being wrong a lot. Sure. Right. It, like yeah. 
maybe not wrong, like objectively wrong, but like wrong for me. Mm. You know, I think, you know, I probably went through a phase that a lot of people go through and they're kind of young twenties or whatever, when they're kind of becoming more awakened or aware of social issues that don't sit right with them, whether it's certain types of injustice or um, lack of equity, right? Like, you know, I became charged just like lots of young people. Mm -hmm. One of the habits that I got into, and it was to some degree because that's what everybody else was doing, was assuming that calling people out Mm -hmm. for what I perceived them to be doing wrong was the best way to express my activism and my politics. Sure. And I'm not even going to say that's wrong because I think a lot of people think holding other people accountable is an important part, right, of making positive social change. Yeah. But I think the danger of getting caught up there is that you commit yourself to a politics of blame. Sure. And I really had to think really deeply about what it meant for me to try to make change. You know? and I think at some point I just kind of made this commitment to myself that like, there are going to be a lot of people who work on diagnosing the problem. Mm. Like, that there are going to be a lot of people out there like that. And that I am not needed there because sure. we do that a lot. It's pretty much what Twitter is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just decided like, I'm going to be a solution maker, even though that's really hard. And I think now that I've, really tried to put all my energy there. Um, One of the things I've learned is that in any community that you enter into, the shape of their problems will require a very unique type of solution. And that people in that community have already invested time and energy and passion and care and empathy into trying to, to solve problems, you know? And so, you know, what I've come to find and one of the things that I really appreciate about how the BA is approaching my ambassadorship mm-hmm. is that the first step is go listen. Sure. Absolutely. Go listen and go figure out what has already been done and what people need. And don't assume that you can, you know, publish like top five steps to diversifying your homework club, you know, like, I mean, that's I mean I'm going to click that link. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I right? like, I think people want that listicle approach to everything. And I'm like, it's not going to solve anything. That's yeah, not, not really, right? So actually, that uh, so how long exactly has it been that you've taken this position? Yeah, about a month now. Been a month so. now. What are your What are your goals with this? So I'm working in collaboration with the diversity committee mm-hmm. of the BA. The committee is definitely still forming its goals. Okay. However, so listening actually is actually one of the big things that we've put forward. And that's probably my first and foremost thing, like figure, figure out what people want to say. Okay. You know, one of the other goals is to produce some best practice type material. Mm. So some resources that will help folks who are thinking about ways to work through what they want to work through. And that's part of it. Research for me, that was, it was kind of one of my conditions of accepting the post. Like I want to be able to work as, as a researcher. So um, bring data to the problem. Lots of times when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's really like cheerleading. Sure. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, let's, let's, yeah, sure. I'm going to stand up and cheerlead. That's awesome. But I also think we need to put some, some data and some heart research on the problem. 
Yeah. And so that that's definitely something that will be part of what I do. And then the rest, I think, hopefully will take shape as we communicate more with BA members and the mm-hmm. kind of broader craft beer community. I mean, one of the things that I've really loved most about being in this role for the last month is how many consumer groups have reached out to say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, uh, as I, would, I didn't expect it, but it's been really cool. So just groups of of drinkers and fans and um, homebrew clubs saying like, yeah, hey, we're here and we want to be part of this too. And that, yeah, that's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm really excited for you and for the Brewers Association and listening to you talk about your approach to diversity kind of makes me even more excited for that group because I feel like that's a a really well-balanced approach to a problem that's difficult to solve. And I feel like your approach takes out some of the really difficult discussions around diversity. Like one of the things that oftentimes in like my organization where I work, they'll ask, well, let's, they say, well, before we address diversity, let's define diversity. And I, (laughs) I think that's a really important question, but I feel like your approach alleviates that need because you define diversity through a conversation about people and who they are and what they've tried. And I, that's, thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, and I tell people you should define your diversity, but I, I don't think it should be like hard parameters, right? Like I think the community tells you, you know, sure. like I'm, a, I'm such a believer in, in communities, you know, they have so much like energy and so many resources that I think we forget to tap into and it's probably one of the reasons i've loved the craft beer industry and homebrewing in particular right because i have really really vibrant expressions of community and that you know hopefully that's part of what i'll get to do as long as i'm you know holding the ambassadorship is really talk with people and help them kind of form relationships and, and collaborations that result in positive change you know i it's one of the things that i kind of believe most centrally is that when you do diversity and inclusion well, everybody benefits. Everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like one of the things is it comes kind of close time for us to wrap up this podcast that comes through, especially in the last few minutes, but throughout the whole time is how passionate you are about what you do. So can you spend some time and just give some advice to any listeners who might be struggling to find a role in their lives where they can bring their passion to, to what they do? Oh, wow. Yeah, so... <laughs> I so I do a lot of this with my college students hmm. to the point where they ask me to start hashtagging um, such <laughs> messages when I put them on social media. So if you ever see hashtag Professor Coach, that is me like nice. waxing poetic on such things. But I think for me, it's embracing struggle is is big. Sure, I was so incredibly blessed with parents who told me to shut up when I whined about things being unfair. <laughs> they were like, why would you ever expect that? Right. And they, you know, it came from a place of love. They weren't yeah. like abusive weirdos, but they um, helped me set a really solid set of expectations about what my path through the world was going to be like. Second, I was a person who had lots of like weird external things happen to them um, as everybody does. Right. Mm. But I think at a really important time in my life, somebody told me to um, told me to stop being defined by my circumstances. Wow. Yeah. And I I honestly think this is like a Mike Dicka quote, something somewhere. I have no (laughs) idea, but like literally this idea, like you can either be defined by your circumstances or you can be defined by, by how you deal with it that was so transformational for me. Like I was like, Oh, 
And that was huge. And then I, I think I've always just really believed that if I don't have some degree of fear, it's really not worth it. Weirdly, that's kind of been my litmus test of like, like if you are, if you're staying up at night a little bit and you're kind of scared, that that means you're on the right path. All right. And so maybe that's not the like most rosy picture, right? Like, right. you know, embrace your passions by being like terrified and struggling. But uh, well, I mean, I think there know. is some element of risk in kind of doing what it is you want to do. Any a lot of people can show up and nine to five for someone else's passion. But if you're going to do your own passion, there is some risk associated with you and some vulnerability associated with you saying this is who I am, no matter what the consequences are. Yeah, absolutely. I think I find myself inspired by that. Thank you for sharing all of that with us and with our listeners. Hi, today. You're welcome. You're That's welcome. actually uh, really good advice for me because I'm actually in the middle of a pretty big transition that is terrifying. Okay. And I think like I, I kind of had come to the same conclusion where. If I don't know that I'm necessarily 100% adequate for the challenges that I put myself up to, but I'm also the kind of person that wants to learn and grow, which is to say that I'm a person, right? right. I don't know that anyone necessarily wants to remain stagnant and not grow. And I think that if you're afraid, you if you are afraid that you're not adequate, maybe you're not, but that means that there are things you get to learn. There are ways that you get to become this next version of yourself. And that should be, that shouldn't, even though that is scary, that should also be a little bit exciting. Yeah. Well, right. You just kind of, you just kind of put the nail on it, right? Because what you're seeing as maybe like the possibility of your own inadequacy is also exactly where your room for growth is. Yeah. I love that. That What you're seeing is like you're where you get to grow into planning to fail. Planning right. to fail is huge. I uh, I mentor at a high school here in town. And I think that there are other mentors there that are constantly, they have the idea that we have to protect these high schoolers from making mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, no, and so, like, one of the things I do, like, I'm a mentor there. I teach software pro. I, I teach software development. And the thing is, the reason I am where I uh, am at in software development Right. The reason I know the things I do is because of the number of times I've messed things up. Yeah. The number of times you forgot that semicolon or whatever. Yeah. And I kind of <laughs> ah, there like, it is. Like I kind of go back to when you're talking about how you're teaching. Sometimes uh, you end up teaching the student organization. You teach them how to brew at the level you're brewing at now, and they don't necessarily always get the context of all the mistakes you've had to make. Yeah getting yeah. there. So I like the idea that you are making them go back and do extract brewing and right. trying to get them to learn in the same fashion that you had to learn the way that you had to come up because the struggle is what gets you there. Yeah. Totally. So we're, uh, we're about to wrap up. I, uh, do you have any parting shots for us? This has been kind of a, a very impactful, uh, podcast for us, but any, anything before we go? Parting shots? No, probably not, but just thank you. Yeah. This has been yeah. a ton of fun. It was really great to meet you guys. Yeah, it was uh, it was our pleasure as well. So I want to yeah. I want to thank our listeners for listening to this episode of Plato's Gravity. If you would like to connect uh, with Dr. Jackson Beckham, you can find her on Twitter or Instagram at J Nicole Beckham. That's J N I K O L B E C K H A M, or on Facebook as J Jackson Beckham. If you have questions for the show, you can find us at Plato's Gravity on Twitter, Instagram, or on our Facebook page. You can also email us at podcast at platosgravity.com. 
And if you love the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters will receive an RSS feed for bonus outtakes of every episode. Thanks again a ton for listening to the show. In the meantime, tackle your passions, brew some beer, and have some fun. Thanks, guys.